Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we learn more about cryptocurrencies and why they've fallen in value so much over the last few weeks, and what that may signal for the future of things such as Bitcoin. We speak to a former Department of Homeland Security official in the U.S. about the spike in white supremacist, extremist-motivated acts of violence following a mass shooting at a Buffalo grocery store over the weekend that killed 10. Police say the attack in a predominantly African-American neighborhood was motivated by racist hate. We also ask how well Canada is tackling the growing security threat on this side of the border. But first, we speak to Innocence Canada co-president and fellow exoneree Ron Dalton about the life and legacy of David Bilgard, who passed away over the weekend. The victim of one of Canada's most notorious miscarriages of justice, he was freed after 23 years behind bars after being wrongfully convicted in the murder of a Saskatchewan nursing assistant. We begin tonight, though, with the life and legacy of the man at the center of one of this country's most notorious wrongful convictions. David Milgard died of pneumonia in Calgary on Sunday at the age of 69. Still a teenager, he was convicted way back in 1970 of the murder the year before of nursing assistant Gail Miller in Saskatchewan and sentenced to life in jail. Milgard had always maintained his innocence, but he would spend 23 years behind bars before he was proven right and released in 1992. Subsequent DNA tests formally exonerated Milgard in 97, proved that serial rapist Larry Fisher had in fact committed the crime. Uh, the Saskatchewan government later issued Milgard a formal apology, awarded him $10 million in compensation. But in prison and after his release in particular, he remained a strong advocate for the wrongfully convicted. Here he is recently talking about what had become his mission in life, mission in life and will remain his legacy in death. We're working very hard to get a new commission set up, an independent review board uh, commission that's going to uh, to work to correct the problems that the Justice Department had in this country when uh, they, uh, and they still are, they still are working to, uh, to have people released uh, from prison. But the problem is that they can't do so effectively and they can't do so efficiently. They don't have the resources to do so. And they uh, really uh, are not able to, to move people that have done no wrong. Ron Dalton is a fellow exoneree, co-president of Innocence Canada, a non-profit organization dedicated to identifying, advocating for, and exonerating individuals convicted of a crime they did not commit. And Ron Dalton joins me now from Prince Edward Island. Thanks so much for being here tonight. You're welcome. Um, I guess just your your memories of, of David Milgard, I know you knew him well. Um, when you think back to him tonight, what do you think about well, I'm, I'm in awe of what David accomplished in his life. He he got a very raw deal as a teenage child, really. I mean, he was. He told me once he was a 17-year-old teenager when he got to the penitentiary, and he was a 40-year-old teenager when they let him out of the penitentiary. You don't tend to mature or grow up much in in those places. He survived. That was his main job at the time. Uh, but he had a, a very difficult incarceration. That was a very brutal. Uh, murder of, of Gail Miller. You know, she was sexually assaulted and stabbed and left in a snowbank at a bus stop. And although David had absolutely nothing to do with that, uh, he had to wear it for almost 30 years. You know, he was incarcerated for 23 years. It was another five years after he got out before Innocence Canada and, and others were able to prove his innocence. It was one of the first DNA cases we ever did in Canada. We, we actually had to go to Great Britain to get the uh, the DNA analyzed that would 
ultimately uh, convincingly proved that David was not guilty, and it actually led to uh, Larry Fisher and his conviction. Why do you think his that's case the, remains? That's the business, that's the business side the business of, of David. Now, the, right. the, the personal, the personal is, is a whole different thing. He was a he was a, an exceptionally uh, generous and, and sweet man. He was he could never say no to anyone. He had people. Uh, uh, coming to him and asking for help, and uh, if they weren't coming to him and asking for help, if David saw an injustice, he would reach out himself. He would proactively contact people and say, I may not be able to fix your problem, but I think I can help a bit. Uh, or As the years went on, his name meant something. If David uh, called a, a press conference, people showed up, and if he uh, spoke on your behalf, it often made a difference. Ron, you, you were wrongfully convicted uh, and later exonerated yes. in the death, death of your wife, and you spent time in jail as an older man, but got out as well. How difficult is it to to move on in some ways, or at least still keep the kind of attitude that David Milgard did for so long? I, I, I don't know that I uh, would, would even aspire to the, the type of attitude David managed to maintain. <laughs> uh, we all come out of that experience damaged goods one way or the other, you know, you you suffer in, in the, uh, maximum security prison for years for something that you haven't done. It takes a toll on you, uh, and it takes a toll on your family and, and friends, and that in itself takes a, a toll on you. But you David, David had the... Uh, you go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ron. I, I was just going to say that uh, uh, David had the perfect excuse to walk away from all of this. He suffered horrendously while he was in prison. Uh, his life was uh, more time uh, incarcerated than not by the time he got it, uh, got himself acquitted. And he could have just gone on about his life. Uh, but that wasn't David. It wasn't the way David was made. He walked away from prison, but he walked away looking over his shoulder, uh, knowing that there was people like myself and, and others left behind. And David thought he could make a difference, and he did make a difference. He spent the rest of his life turning that uh, suffering and, and uh, pain and, and bitterness uh, that he could have dwelt on uh, into helping other people. And it was it was part of what made him uh, uh, the man that he was, and, and it's made a difference in our Canadian justice system. He actually managed to do what very few of us do, is, is he moved the needle in the right direction. He didn't fix all of the problems, but he identified a lot of them, and he worked hard and had some successes along the way. And most recently, the, the last two or three years in particular, uh, his pet project uh, was trying to get the federal government to actually act on 35-year-old recommendations coming out of public inquiries. Uh, I think we had seven public inquiries in this country looking into wrongful convictions, David's and my own included. And five of those recommended the establishment of an independent, that is reporting to parliament and not to the justice minister, who was also the top cop and, and prosecutor in the country, uh, and publicly funded body to do the type of work that Innocence Canada has been doing for 30 years now on a non-profit volunteer basis. We need a, a better system than that, and David was acutely aware of, of that fact. And we're to the point now where we are actually making progress. We, we heard the Minister Lametti uh, comment yesterday that uh, there is action being undertaken to set up the type of independent committee that's been recommended for years and years. And we owe a lot of that to David. Ron, how important is it 
when you are wrongfully convicted, you know you're innocent and you're in jail, to have a beacon, to be able to look out there and think that there's a David Milgard or a Ron Dalton out there who is willing to listen to you, who may be willing to fight for you. Well, it's, it's definitely important. Uh, there's two parts to your question. The, the one part is how important is knowing that you're innocent, because sometimes you're the only person that has the sure and certain knowledge that you are innocent. You have family and friends and lawyers and, and people who support you. Many of them believe in your innocence, but you are quite often the only person that knows for sure that you're completely innocent. Sometimes that's all you have to get you through the any given day in, in the prison environment. And the other thing that makes the years bearable is looking at people like uh, Donald Marshall, David Milgard, Stephen Truscott, some of the people who came through the ordeal and, and managed to survive. It gives you hope that the, you know, your own case will eventually get the, enough positive attention that it'll get overturned and the mistakes will be corrected. I've seen the uh, hardened uh, criminals who had, you know, convicted murderers break down in tears at meeting David because they spent 20 or more years in a prison uh, looking at people like David and, and Donald Marshall for hope. So when we come vital. back, we're going to... Ron, when we come back, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, I was going to ask you a bit more about this independent commission that David Lametti has been talking about. I know it's been a long time that we've been talking about this. Um, I'm going to ask you to explain just why it'll make a difference. We'll do that after this. Excuse me for getting emotional. Um, I can assure you that this will happen. Uh, David Milgard died yesterday. I was profoundly saddened by the fact that he would not live to see this. Um, I'd spoken with David uh, and I assured him this would happen. That's Federal Justice Minister David Lametti today. He says his government is weighing its options on what the design should be for a new independent commission that would review the claims of wrongful commissions one day, of course, after the death of David Milgard. I'm speaking about the life and legacy of David Milgard with Ron Dalton of Innocent, Innocence Canada, also an exoneree. Uh, Ron, what difference would this independent body make, uh, do you think, when it comes to making sure that those who are wrongfully convicted uh, are 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 released. Well, you, you have to have a little bit of understanding about what the current system is. Currently, you get arrested, you get charged, you go to trial. If you're convicted, uh, you may appeal your conviction uh, to the provincial uh, Supreme Court. And uh, if you lose at that level, you may uh, apply to appeal it to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and that process alone can take a number of years, not uncommon to go three, four or five years until your appeals have been completed. At that stage, you've run out of, of places to appeal to. The only remaining uh, chance of getting your conviction overturned is making application to the federal justice minister under section 696.1 of the criminal code. And the justice minister has a, a small branch of the federal justice department in Ottawa. They're called the criminal case review committee and there are a number of lawyers and, and support staff who review uh, allegations and claims of innocence from people who have been uh, convicted and lost all of their appeals. And that can take four or five or, or more years as well. And if uh, you don't go to them, the only other game in town on a national basis, there are a couple of small uh, 
innocence projects, mostly based at universities in the country. But there's only one group doing that type of work on a national basis, and that's Innocence Canada. And for the last almost 30 years now, we're 29 and change, uh, we've been doing that sort of work. And, and one of the earliest cases we did was, was David's case. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother, of course, Joyce, was uh, largely responsible for getting David out of prison, on parole at least. And then Innocence Canada came along and, and we were able to uh, get some DNA analysis to prove that he was innocent. That's the, the current situation. But the only thing standing between you or I or any other citizen of the country and a wrongful conviction and, and getting freed once that's happened is a nonprofit group of do-gooders. You know, these, these are a bunch of people who do excellent work. We've, we're responsible for a couple dozen exonerations over the last 30 years. We have another 10 cases pending before the minister's department uh, currently, and we have 109 cases that we're currently reviewing. Half of them are on a three- or four-year wait list. And we only we only look at the most serious of cases in the country. We we only have the limited resources we have. We've had to focus on homicide cases. So in the Commonwealth jurisdictions that have an independent, publicly funded body, as has been recommended in this country for the last 35 years, not just by people like David and I, but these are public inquiries that have been held looking into cases, David and my own included. They've uh, five of the seven uh, public inquiries have recommended that Canada implement a similar system that other Commonwealth countries have done. And in those instances, they've set up an independent body that reports to the Parliament, not through the Minister, and they've given them the resources, investigative resources, they've given them uh, executive powers to refer things directly back to courts for further review without going through the the Minister again. So it's an attempt to depoliticize the process, but also to speed it up, make it more efficient, and broaden it. The the cases that Innocence Canada has uh, been able to look at in the last 30 years, we're, we're very proud of the of what the work that we've done, but we know we're only scratching the surface. There's a lot and more was, people other than homicide to convictions that are, require review. And certainly that would be a fitting tribute, I imagine, in your mind, to David. Well, I, we, we had some uh, consultations uh, this time last year. The federal government uh, hired a couple of uh, retired justices, uh, Harry LaForme and, and Juanita uh, Westmoreland Traore, to advise them on, on what a new commission should look like. And one of the first things they did is they met with wrongly convicted individuals, including David and I, and they met with Innocence Canada and a number of like-minded groups uh, to, to hear about our experience working these cases and what we thought the powers of a new commission should be. So uh, you're going to hear, and they, they've recently published the, the recommendations that they made to the minister, came out a couple of months ago. But when you read those recommendations, you hear echoes of David's voice in there. They listened, they heard what David had to say. They were touched by David's compassion and dedication, as, as anybody that's worked closely with him uh, has been. He, he devoted uh, his life, basically, to, uh, to fixing wrongs that he hadn't created. It sounds like you're going to miss him, Ron. Oh, definitely going to miss him, yeah. On a, on a personal level, for sure, I'm, I'm going to miss him, but... Uh, 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 Innocence Canada, of course, we will miss him and, and the leadership that he's provided to, to the wrongly convicted. And the country is the poorer today for, for his death yesterday. 
he uh, he helped us get to the point we're at now. And uh, uh, you know, I, I believe uh, Minister Lametti, when he speaks and says that they're making progress and trying to figure out what a new commission should look like, and they've listened to people like David. Thank goodness they had that opportunity a year ago. Uh, but it's going to take a bit of time. When we were doing these consultations a year ago, I suggested that they might want to name their new committee after uh, uh, Joyce Milgard. So there's still an opportunity for them to call it the Milgard Commission on Wrongful Convictions or something, you know. Ron Dalton, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. And my condolences. No problem. Thank you. Well, I'm not a huge wealth of knowledge when it comes to cryptocurrencies. I think a lot of, like a lot of people, I follow the ups and downs. I know a little bit about how they work, uh, but not too, too much. So I thought I'd go out and find someone who could actually walk us through this a bit, especially with the volatility of late. Uh, Bitcoin dropped back below $30,000 today with global equity markets still under pressure, of course. And you know, as the old uh, Jimmy Cliff song goes, the harder they come, the harder they fall. Um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies surged during the pandemic. We all remember those stories. Um, many amateur investors, I can't tell you how many people have told me about uh, Bitcoin over the last two years. Uh, but it's hit an all-time low, uh, or it's hit an all, it hit an all-time high of $68,000 in November. Today, it's trading at about half that, as I mentioned. Uh, Ethereum, another big one, is down 24%, or was last week, 50% since the beginning of the year. Even worse for an area of cryptocurrencies called stablecoins, uh, one called TerraUSD has tumbled hard. And all of this has also re-energized those who are calling on regulators to jump in and do something, try to regulate what is an ungoverned space right now. Well, with more on this is Alfred Lahar. He's a finance professor at the Haskane School of Business at the University of Calgary, and he studies the impact of blockchain technologies on capital markets. We thought we'd have him on to explain what's going on. Alfred Lahar, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to now, be here. This is one of those issues that I think we hear a lot about. Um, I'm not sure how much everyone knows exactly what we're talking about when we talk about cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's the one that most of us will have heard of. Uh, what is it and what's happened to it of late? So Bitcoin is just uh, a an entry on a ledger that you own a certain fraction of Bitcoin. There's no fundamental value on Bitcoin or anything. And the difference is that this ledger is not maintained by a centralized entity like a bank or a government. It's uh, Nobody really controls it. It's just there on the internet. And that's what's unique about Bitcoin. And you can invest in it, obviously, as an individual investor. You can buy a little piece yeah, of it. Yeah, you can buy it. Uh, a lot of institutional investors can, can buy it. And, and it's been tremendously successful. It was the first um, cryptocurrency that, that worked, that investors had confidence in, that people bought in. Recently, we saw a, um, a strong decline, and there's always a lot of volatility in these markets because these assets are new and people are not too sure what to do with them. Yeah, tell me a bit about, if you could, about the incredible popularity of Bitcoin, the surge in value of Bitcoin, and then what's happened to it of late, and, and why has it fallen in value so much recently? So I think Bitcoin is popular because it's new. It's an exciting new technology. And if you live 
in a country where you don't really trust the government very much or the government currency, then this is a really great alternative to put your money. Um, the underlying technology is really spectacular. And I think we will see that at least the technology of the currencies remains and will um, really reshape the way we do finance. Whether any particular cryptocurrency will survive for the next five years is a different question that's out there. We don't really know that. Um, but Bitcoin has been tremendously popular and a lot of people thought it was kind of the new gold and an inflation hedge. But recently we've seen that this is actually not really the case when uh, a lot of other financial markets went down, Bitcoin went down as well. And quite recently with the failure of the uh, Terra stablecoin, uh, we've seen a spectacular decline also in Bitcoin and in all cryptos for that, for that matter. And that was an incident that really reshaped people's beliefs about how this will work. How, how high did Bitcoin get and how much has it fallen? And, and, and my understanding was that, it, is it surprising that, that the value is, is tied to what's happening in broader markets around inflation and so forth? So it is not, it is surprising. A lot of people thought, well, this is, has struck similarities to gold because there's no real economic value in Bitcoin similar to gold. You cannot really do very much with gold except for some industrial uses. And there's limited supply, and this is what Bitcoin, what makes Bitcoin very similar. But then recently we've seen that in, in times of financial crisis, investors try to invest in something safe, and that is not Bitcoin. And in part, that's probably because more institutional money flows into these cryptocurrency markets. And as more institutional investors and hedge funds are in this space, it just becomes more similar to other financial assets. You mentioned stable coins earlier. Um, I know we've been reading about them more of late because of what's happened to one in specific, but what are they and, and how do they relate to Bitcoin or to other cryptocurrencies? So a stable coin is a cryptocurrency that aims to be valued at uh, the price of at a fiat currency. And most of them are valued to the US dollar, pegged to the US dollar. So uh, ideally one unit of a stable coin should be equal to one US dollar. And there is different ways to do that, uh, to achieve this kind of thing. Uh, one way that has been proved to be more successful and more stable is that a company says, well, I put so and so many dollars in a vault or in an account with a trusted US bank. And then if I put $10 million in my bank account, they issue $10 million tokens. And then each of these tokens corresponds to one dollar that I have in my bank account. And that was pretty safe. There's other ways to do that. Um, and those ways have proven out to be not so safe, uh, like Terra has illustrated recently. Yeah. What, what, is, what happened there? What is it and why has it been all of a sudden such a big story in the cryptocurrency space and more broadly in the financial space? So Terra is what's called an algorithmic stable coin. And they try to... Uh, they usually issue two tokens, and in this case, one was called UST, which was the stablecoin, and Luna was the uh, corresponding other token. And the idea was that Luna would be volatile and uh, UST would be stable and safe, linked to a dollar, and whatever the price of uh, UST would fall, then people could just... Uh, 
redeem that for lunar tokens. And on the other hand, if the price of the UST was very high, then people could exchange lunar tokens for new UST um, stable coins. And so one would absorb kind of the volatility of the market and the other token would provide stability. Well, as it turns out, this didn't really work uh, as intended. Uh, uh, Alfred, when you, when you describe this, um, it, it all sounds very mysterious to some extent. I mean, is, is this still a very risky space to be investing in in many ways? I think in many ways it is a very risky way, a space to invest in uh, because we are trying new technologies uh, and people are trying new things. And like with anything new, some things work out and some things don't. And this was clearly an example of something that does not work out. And in a way, what we saw was a crypto bank run. And so in a, we have seen bank runs in the real banking system. And this is just a crypto bank run. And so the same kind of economic rational applies here as with a traditional bank run. If people don't believe in it, they sell it. And the price of Luna falls, which serves as the collateral. And then everything goes downhill. And now both tokens are pro- pretty much worthless. There seems to be so much excitement, or at least hype, around cryptocurrencies. Has has reality caught up to them yet? I mean, it, it, where wherein lies the gap now between um, how stable a cryptocurrency is and sort of the all this talk of sort of Ponzi scheme, etc. All those words that get thrown around when people aren't quite sure of what it is that's happening; they just know it's falling in value. People have probably been drawn into the space for different reasons. Some people just think, oh, God, I can double my money from today until tomorrow, and that's why I want to invest in this. Uh, they see this just as a trading opportunity, like um, baseball cards or something else, and people just like to to try it out. Other people are excited by the technology. Some people are excited by the fact that there is no government control in this uh, space, and as people are attracted by different motives, probably they have different expectations how this will work out. And I don't think that there is any way you can really make a lot of money very quickly. Uh, otherwise, other people would do that too. I'm speaking with Alfred Lahari. He's a finance professor at the Haskane School of Business at the University of Calgary, who studies the impact of blockchain blockchain technologies on capital markets. After this, we'll talk a bit about regulation because uh, with such volatility, of course, comes demands or at least uh, suggestions that maybe uh, government will, in fact, step in to regulate some of these areas more. And we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Alfred Lahari. He's a finance professor at the Haskane School of Business at the University of Calgary, who studies the impact of blockchain technologies on capital markets. We've been talking about the fall, uh, the quite dramatic fall in the value of many cryptocurrencies of late, specifically Bitcoin, but others as well. And just what that says about the broader excitement uh, around uh, cryptocurrencies. One thing you brought up earlier, uh, Professor Lahari, that, that's interesting is this idea that it was meant to be a hedge against inflation. Um why is that? And, and you mentioned it earlier, but why hasn't it proven to be so, so far? We don't really know it's, um, why this didn't turn out. I think because uh, more institutional investors have invested in this space. There's a lot of leverage in this space. People buy cryptocurrencies on margin. And when the volatility goes up, there's um, on one hand deleveraging. And on the other side, we see that um, these institutional investors want to invest in something that's safer. And so 
that is not crypto. And therefore, we see that uh, it doesn't really work out that well as inflation hedge. I read something over the weekend that's the famous shoeshine boy um, analogy about once the shoeshine boy gives you stock tips, you know you're heading towards a crash. Uh, do you think that that rings true when it comes to crypto? Are we hearing so many people talk about it that in fact, um, the hype outran the reality of what's out there? What, what is a good investment? I think that there's a lot of hype out there and it's true. I've got crypto advice for many people uh, that I would never thought are that much into investing. And it is true. Uh, I think there is a lot of hype, a lot of, there's probably a bubble in some cryptos, um, but I still think that the underlying technology is really very good, will reshape the way we do finance, will save the economy a lot of money, will contribute to a lot of growth. Uh, but whether any particular coin that's hyped up at this moment and that just grew 200% in value uh, will continue to do so, I highly doubt that. Where do you see the benefits from this? Because clearly you study blockchain technology, you believe in it. Where do you think we, we go from here? It's still very new, uh, honestly. The great real innovation of this is that we can combine computer code and payments. So we can deploy a compute, little computer program on a blockchain and we can trust this computer program. Nobody can change it anymore. So if you think about a website that does some handle some money for us, somebody could pull the plug on the website. Or if I don't know if that blockchain at uh, that website gets hacked and still does the same thing it did yesterday or not. On the blockchain, if you have a computer program deployed there that handles payments, we know exactly what that computer program is doing and nobody can change it. It's immutable. And so we can trust that. And that allows for a lot of um, opportunities to be there. So, for example, if you buy a house at the moment, we give money to a lawyer. That lawyer holds the money in custody. And um, then once the title is transferred, the lawyer gives the money to another lawyer who pays it to the seller. It's a complicated process. It takes time. It costs fees. Uh, we could automate that on a smart contract. On the blockchain, I give my money to a, a computer program. The computer program checks if the land title was transferred. If yes, then it releases the money to the seller. If no, then I get my money back. It's a simple enough pro problem that a computer program can handle that. And so we don't need a lawyer to hold anything in escrow. Uh, there's a lot of other opportunities where this new technology could save money for the broader economy. A lot of things can be done more efficiently. If you are a bank at the moment, you're concerned if you have a mortgage, whether the uh, house owner has a fire insurance, I could provide cryptographic proof on the blockchain that I have fire insurance. I get a little fire insurance token. I deposit that with my mortgage. Uh, the bank can be sure that I have fire insurance. Um, a lot of ways to do things smarter, more efficient instead of paper we can do this on the blockchain and this will really save uh, a lot of money. So not just as some sort of get rich quick scheme, but really a much more efficient way of proving of proof of payment, essentially, or at least proof of funds. Yes, a much more efficient way to make payments, proof of funds, but also to make conditional payments, right? So I could make, for example, if I'm a shipping company and I can see that uh, an item has uh, been offloaded in the port of Vancouver that could automatically trigger my payment. And the seller would know that they get paid once the item has been delivered. 
and I know that I, the item has been delivered before I pay. So it reduces a lot of contractual frictions between parties, and this could make it much more easier to do business. I know part of the appeal, of course, is the lack of regulation. But as this progresses and considering what we've just seen over the last little while with the volatility, do you have any anticipation or do you anticipate that there will be more regulation around around this space than there is right now? It's hard to tell. I think it would definitely be a bad advice for governments to just cramp down on this and outlaw it because the technology is out there. These blockchains exist. You cannot really outlaw them. And I think it would just hamper innovation. And this is a great technology that can bring great economic benefits. On the other hand, a lot of people want some kind of regulation. A lot of businesses, large investors want some kind of assurance that whoever they're trading with on the other side is not a drug lord or a terrorist. So um, people are looking for regulation. And I think uh, that we will see hopefully a segmented space where part of that crypto world will become regulated for those people who prefer to be in that regulated space. Uh, But there will always be some segment that is unregulated And that's also good because then new products can be created there, new ideas can be brought to market. And that is just good for innovation in general. Alfred Lahar, thank you so much for shedding some light on a subject that I think we talk about a lot, but I'm not sure we always fully understand. Uh, Thanks so much for your insight. Thank you very much. Well, the House of Commons held a moment of silence today for victims of the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York uh, over the weekend. MPs unanimously condemned the violence. It's just one of those news stories that you that you see. I, I remember seeing it come off. It was on Twitter and thinking, I can't believe this has happened again. Ten people were killed. Three others hurt uh, when a white gunman carrying an assault rifle, wearing body armor, streaming it, showed up at a supermarket in a majority black neighborhood in Buffalo. And started firing. Police say the killings were motivated by racist hate. It's being investigated as a federal hate crime. The shooter allegedly inspired by other similar acts of terror around the world over recent years, including in Charleston, South Carolina, and in Christchurch, New Zealand. Today in Buffalo, the community continued to grieve and voice their anger. Garnell Whitfield is a former Buffalo Fire Commissioner who lost his mom, 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield, in the attack. By someone that just full of hate. For no reason, for no reason, it's very hard for us to to handle right now. You know, we make no apologies for our suffering and our pain. You can see it. We're not going to apologize for that. But we're not just hurting. We're angry. We're mad. This shouldn't have happened. That's Garnell Whitfield, a former Buffalo Fire Commissioner. His mother was killed uh, on Saturday in that attack, 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield, at a grocery store in Buffalo. Well, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas says violent extremists continue to pose one of the most significant terrorism-related threats in that country. Joining me now is Elizabeth Newman. She's a former Department of Homeland Security official and chief strategy officer for the Moonshot team, founded in 2015 to find solutions to confront and stem the rise of violent extremism. Thanks for your time tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Elizabeth, I, I know from where you sit, these incidents aren't always shocking that they occur, but they, I doubt, I have no doubt, are never less uh, angering and disappointing. Uh, just what do we know about what's happened or what happened in Buffalo over the weekend? 
you know, it, it is really disheartening. Um, I've been working on domestic violent extremism since I rejoined the uh, Department of Homeland Security back in 2017. Um, and since I've left, which was 2020, I, I've continued to try to raise the alarm. Um, it, it is a growing problem for us in the United States. Um, this is our eighth year of a very sharp uptick of domestic terrorist activity, according to CSIS. Um, we have had on average 31 people killed a year uh, by domestic terrorists, with the lone exception of 2020 when um, we were all stuck at home. So there was not as many mass gatherings for people to, to be killed. So uh, that combined with this um, very uh, dark white supremacist ideology that that honestly has been around for millennia in some ways, um, that uh, there's a Jewish cabal of elites that are trying to cause harm on society. But the latest iteration of it um, came about in 2011 with the um, horrible uh, terrorist attacks in Norway. Um, and we've seen a number of attackers uh, be inspired by that that attack um, and the more other more prominent one that people might remember it's more recent was in Christchurch and in the United States we've had several attackers be inspired by those two primary events and, and in Buffalo we see the attacker reference the Christchurch attackers manifesto reference other bits and pieces from the Norway attacker um, and it's this uh, theory that the white race is going to be eliminated through a combination of low birth rates and immigrants uh, coming into the country, and um, that it's not just happening by uh, you know organically. That there's actually a, an orchestration behind it. That that this is uh, the, the demographic change that is very real. There is demographic change in our country. Um, but that it's by design and the design is to uh, rid the, the, the world of white people. Um, so it's this, uh, it, there's pseudoscience to it. There's, I almost don't want to give it airtime because there's just so much of it that is evil and disgusting. Uh, and yet increasingly prominent, not only in the extreme uh, conversations online that are they're advocating for violence like this this guy in Buffalo was spending time in but it's also infiltrated our um, mainstream political dialogue in the United States lately and and that's very concerning because it's creating on ramps for people to be open to the more violent extremism that the Buffalo attacker represents how does the radicalization take place because I understand that it is not unlike radicalization of other uh, extremist ideologies. Uh, but it, but there is a pattern here. And I think, I believe we've seen that pattern repeat itself uh, during this horrific incident over the weekend. Yes, um, you're correct that increasingly all um, extremist radicalization, um, there's there was a shift. Uh, if you look before 2009, most radicalization occurred in person. There might have been some uh, exposure through some form of media online. Um, but between 2009 and 2016, it completely inverts and the preponderance, overwhelming majority of people that are radicalized do so online. Now they may end up with in-person, in real life contact, 
that still happens. There are groups that meet. There are uh, movements in the United States uh, for various ideologies to get together. Um, but increasingly, uh, we have seen not just in the United States, but globally, most radicalization takes place online. And if the Buffalo attackers manifesto is to be believed, which, you know, we should always take with um, caution, that is his presentation of what he wants the world to think about him. So uh, there's an investigation underway, we will learn more. Um, but but certainly he uh, purports that he had no contact with anybody, and that everything he believes and he was espousing in his manifesto came from his engagement in online uh, spaces, particularly 4chan is mentioned as, as one of those places where he uh, was exposed to the, the most evil and darkest of, of these conspiracy theories. Elizabeth, this, as far as we know, I gather, this was a, a well-planned attack. Yes, uh, we believe that uh, he modeled his attack off of the Christchurch shooter and to uh, some extent also um, some of the other uh, uh, white supremacist attacks that that we've um, talked about already. Uh, and he was live streaming the event on Twitch, which the Christchurch shooter also did. Uh, he was uh, planning on going to two locations at least and uh, ended up getting stopped at the first location. The Christchurch shooter also went to two mosques when he was uh, targeting Muslims. It was targeted in that he was not indiscriminately just shooting people. He wanted to shoot black people. And he makes it very clear in his manifesto, he looked up the zip code in his state that had the most black people and chose a location where he knew it would be more likely to inflict harm on black people. Um, so there was a lot of discussion in his manifesto about the types of gear he was going to use, the way he was going to enter uh, the, the location. It, it clearly was planned. He reportedly was there the day before doing that uh, kind of scoping out activity. And um, he he makes it really clear in his manifesto that for him that the, there was the motive behind this was to rally other people to a similar call of pushing back against um, the invasion of immigrants and and people that are not white. So in in large part, the violence is really to get attention to his cause, uh, which is a, a hallmark of terrorism, right? It's like the violence is almost secondary. Your purpose is trying to get everybody to pay attention to what is wrong and try to get other people to go out and carry out similar attacks. Was this, was this a prevent, were there warning signs here? Was this a preventable attack? It's a really great question. Um, we now know a whole lot about how people radicalize, why they radicalize, um, compared to, say, 20 years ago, shortly after 9-11, when we were all struggling with trying to understand how, how human beings could do this to one another. Um, and I do think that we are now at a place where we can develop capabilities that are they're locally based that will prevent crimes like these. However, in the United States, those prevention capabilities don't exist today. Um, they're, they're 
few places where they're piloting them. Uh, and there's some a little bit of money that's been put forward. Um, and it's something that needs to scale rapidly. If you look at Germany, they're spending a billion dollars over three years to uh, invest in prevention of uh, hate crimes, racism, and domestic what we call domestic violent extremism, they call right wing extremism. Um, they they are taking it seriously, they're actually looking at increasing what they've already committed to. In the United States, we're spending about 30 million with an M uh, compared to Germany's 1 billion with a B. And and I'm not talking about law enforcement resources because law enforcement is certainly an important part of um, trying to keep us safe, but law enforcement's overwhelmed. And in the United States, we do not have uh, laws that allow us to arrest people because they say something uh, indicative of violence. Um, We can have conversations with people that say that and try to evaluate whether they're mentally well, whether um, they might pose a threat, but we can't arrest people because the First Amendment protects people to have ideas and speech that we might find abhorrent. And so in the United States, we need alternatives um, to intervene with people that are not law enforcement based, but allow us to try to come alongside those individuals who are contemplating Uh, radicalization or who are radicalized and are contemplating violence to try to stem the tide of this uh, epidemic of violence we have in the country. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Newman. She's a former Department of Homeland Security official in the U.S. and chief strategy officer for the Moonshot team founded in 2015 to find solutions to confront and stem the rise of violent extremism. We're talking about the attack on a grocery store in Buffalo over the weekend that left 10 dead in a predominantly African-American community. We're learning more about the suspected shooter and what may have motivated it. It certainly has links, we believe, uh, to white nationalist extremism, uh, a growing problem uh, both in the U.S. and elsewhere. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what needs to be done to try to prevent attacks like this from happening again. Stay with us. Speaking with Elizabeth Newman, she's a former Department of Homeland Security official and chief strategy officer for the Moonshot team, which was founded in 2015 to find solutions to confront and stem the rise of violent extremism. We're talking about the attack on a grocery store in Buffalo over the weekend that left several dead, targeted, uh, a targeted attack on an African-American, predominantly African-American community. Uh, the suspect has left a manifesto that outlines his violent uh, extremist views, white nationalist extremist views. Elizabeth, what I mean You've said already that the sad, the awful part about this is that most experts in the field, such as yourself, believe it's just a matter of time before another one happens. How do you stop it? That's a, the hardest part of being in this job is when you when the news comes in about these attacks, you knew that that it was coming and it, it's heartbreaking that we weren't able to stop it. Um, we have to keep trying. And I do think that uh, increasing our ability to intervene with people both offline and online where the radicalization is occurring um, is the key to reducing this. I don't think we will ever fully stop it, um, but right now we don't, we certainly don't have enough law enforcement personnel in the country to address the number of people that meet the definition of extremism, um, which is, uh, simply, when you believe that some another group, the out group, poses a threat to your way of life, to your success or survival, and hostile action is therefore necessary. Right now in the United States, extremely polarized, lots of voices saying that it's time to go uh, even uh, more entrenched, harder against that other that other group that you're against, um, and we have 
poll after poll after poll that uh, indicate anywhere between a third to 40% of Americans think that violence may be justified to achieve their political aim. That is the definition of terrorism. Now, not all 30 to 40% are going to go do something. It's usually a very small percentage that actually will take a step and go commit an act of violence. But at that level, it is just insurmountable for law enforcement to, to prevent all of the violence. So we have to be doing more on the prevention stage. We have to be shoring up vulnerabilities of, of, uh, of people that uh, for some reason are taken by the rhetoric that they need to commit an act of violence, that their way of life is being threatened. Um, and and there, there is hope in that the studies that we we have funded over the last 10 and 15 years demonstrate that we can intervene with people and move them to a healthier mindset where they don't think that hostile action is necessary. If you look at Europe and, and what places like the UK and Germany have done, um, they have seen uh, significant success. We just haven't invested in that in the United States and we're woefully behind given the scale of our problem. In Canada, we often talk about guns. We often talk about the the existence of guns in the U.S. Uh, where, from your point of view, does that play a role in these attacks? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I um, recall when I was serving at uh, DHS asking after one of the many attacks that happened on our watch, um, what what needs to happen? And and one of the my colleagues at the FBI kind of in disgust was like. I don't know what we can do here. Um, there's such easy access to guns. And I don't think that the Congress or, or anybody in the political system is ever going to fix this. Right. And, and so there is this uh, reality that um, our, the easy access to guns, the prevalence of a gun culture in the United States, and the politicization of that gun culture um, is is a key factor in why there's so many more lives lost in the United States compared to the rest of the world. And I think from a professional standpoint, while I fully would love to see some sort of gun control measures, and I think you can do that and still be consistent with our second amendment. Um, I, I just don't have a lot of hope in our political system right now to be able to actually effectuate change through some sort of uh, change in the law. And that's why I, I spend a lot more time and focus on prevention, because I think that is something that we could uh, get codified, get funded, and start to rapidly build and start to uh, make our communities healthier and prevent more violence. But certainly, if you gave me a magic wand, <laughs> that is certainly one of the things that I would do and, and make guns less accessible, especially to those who have uh, espoused a desire for violence. There's, there's no reason um, if somebody's ideating about violence that they should be able to easily access guns. And yet understood, of course, this is not an American problem. This is a global problem. We see it here as well in Canada. Mm, very true. Um, and uh, the is the idea ideology of violence or the ideology of hate towards others Absolutely, is global. Global. The the access to guns in the United States is um, probably the the key distinguishing factor that leads to us having uh, more attacks and higher lethality in those attacks compared to um, some of Canada and, and uh, European partners. Elizabeth Newman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
Thank you so much for having me. Talking about the racially motivated attack on a grocery store in Buffalo over the weekend that left 10 dead in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Police are calling it an act of vicious racism. Um, It's also being felt on this side of the border, not just because Buffalo is so close to Toronto. I mean, I lived in Toronto for quite a while and Buffalo, because all your cable comes from there, it almost feels like it's next door. So you can imagine just the impact that, that the shooting has had in Canada's biggest city. It also comes amid warnings in this country about racially motivated attacks. We've seen them here. Uh, it remains white supremacist extreme groups remain the biggest domestic terrorist threat, says CSIS, in this country as well, with researchers identifying some 300 active right-wing hate groups with estimates of tens of thousands more drawn to the movement but with no uh, affiliations or such. There have been seven attacks in Canada since 2014 uh, driven by extremist violence, killing 26 people. We all remember the attack on the mosque in Quebec City in 2017 that killed uh, six warshippers there. So what is the state here in Canada? What are we doing to fight it? And how much do we know about the problem? Joining me now is Barbara Perry. She's a professor of criminology and justice at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa and director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism. Barbara Perry, thank you so much. Good to be with you. Uh, Having lived in Toronto for quite a while, I know how close Buffalo feels. Um, This one, I imagine, hit close to home. Yeah, it did. And and I mean, historically, I, I grew up in uh, rural Ontario, just east of here. So, you know, all of our media was coming from Buffalo. So, um, you know, I really feel like it, it is a part of our community. If we think about, you know, our ball team and our hockey teams, uh, you know, have, have played in, in Buffalo. So, uh, yeah, it it. it it's almost as if it happened to us and it did, you know, close neighbors. It's a, it's an artificial border uh, between Canada and the U S and I think that their pain is our pain in this sort of context. What was your reaction to the news when it first, first broke? What, what were the first things that you thought when you started hearing about what had happened and, and what might be behind it? Well, I'll be honest and say uh, it was essentially, Oh, not again. Um, You know, and then anger and grief, um, that it continues to happen with increasing regularity and frustrating regularity. Uh, you know, we've seen horrific murders like this across the across the globe over the past few years, and even in the Canadian context over the past uh, what seven years or so, we've seen twenty five uh, people slain in. Uh, attacks motivated by far-right violence, just in terms of mass murders, and in addition to that, a couple of individual homicides. Uh, so it it does, I think, resurrect concerns about what we've already seen here, uh, and the fact that in neither country are we being very effective in pushing back against white supremacy, white nationalism, uh, the sort of hatred that inspired this young man. Uh, what what relates this attack? What do we know about this attack already that relates it to the others we've seen that you were that you were just mentioning? Well, clearly the the far right, the white supremacist motivation that underlay uh, the the crime. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about is his invocation of the great replacement theory, which probably for many of us, uh, many Canadians, you know, the first time that we were introduced to that was after the white, uh, sorry, the Christchurch murders uh, in New Zealand, just a couple of years back where that murderer also had a manifesto where he referred to the great replacement theory, which, which is essentially, I mean, there's nothing new about the narrative.
perspective. It really is about the um, the fear that white people are being replaced, um, whether socially or physically or, or biologically by others. Uh, and in particular, it, you know, it, it, it speaks to that fear of the loss of place and, and privilege amongst uh, white men, uh, especially. Uh, I think what maybe differentiates the great replacement theory is that it's really a focus as much on the physical uh, extermination of the white race. So they talk about the fact that there is this global conspiracy afoot to eliminate white people, uh, whether that is through assimilation into other other racial categories or through explicit um, murder. And so, you know, they talk about black on white crime and brown on white crime uh, as all part of that uh, that great conspiracy so that excuse me, white people can be replaced by non-white, non-Christian identities. What's driving the radicalization process, though? Because clearly this is taken to a, to an entirely different level. Uh, what's been driving the radicalization process that we're seeing? I think in the American context in particular, of course, that the, the narratives associated with Donald Trump since his campaign first for leadership of the Republican Party and then for the uh, his campaign for presidency and then through his administration, the narratives around um, immigrant, the threats posed by immigrants, by Latinos, by Muslim people, by trans people, by queer people, uh, you know, all of these messages and policies as well. It's not just about, um, you know, it's not just about his Twitters, but uh, attempting to introduce policies that restrict the rights and freedoms of, uh, of these marginalized groups. I think that has played an inordinate role in shaping the emergence uh, or the resurgence, perhaps we should say, in the American context of the far right of white supremacist, white nationalist uh, groups. He really gave voice to those same kinds of ideologies uh, that have long inspired the far right. So we had that already in in operation. And then, uh, you know, of course, in the 2020 election, more disinformation and misinformation about uh, you know, this this global conspiracy to oust him, the QAnon conspiracy theories. And then, of course, COVID uh, comes into play there uh, and a, an opportunity that's ripe for exploitation by the far right in terms of scapegoating Asian communities, Jewish communities. Again, references to conspiracies about, you know, global global efforts to uh, take control of all people, again, whether that's, you know, a Jewish cabal or, you know, some other elitist um, uh, coalition. Um, And so we've seen just this incredible growth and dissemination of conspiracy theories and disinformation around COVID, around the pandemic itself, and around uh, the responses, public health responses, vaccines, lockdowns, that sort of thing. And so that's where we start to see you know, references to the tyrannical government, uh, for example, and, and government overreach. So this anti-statism uh, that's also emerging. How does that matter? I think to- if I can just add one, yes. one other piece, I think that helps to explain um, another piece that helps to explain this particular case uh, is the, the rise in uh, BIPOC af- activism we've seen across North America, Black Lives Matter and in uh, probably more in the Canadian context, indigenous resistance as well, which is also seen as, you know, an affront uh, to white privilege uh, that, you know, these voices are so, um, so prominent now. And, you know, they're, they're demanding uh, recognition of the threat posed. And this is, this is pushback. This is backlash uh, violence as well, in part. 
how does the radicalization process then happen where, where those beliefs then turn into mass murder? It's so hard to say. There's no linear development there, uh, and there's no single profile. Uh, you know, we don't know very much about this particular individual yet. We do know, uh, or there are reports at least, that he was, uh, you know, of interest to police a year or so ago when he raised uh, uh, threats against, uh, I think, his school, but certainly a school in uh, in his hometown. Um, so, you know, there is some history there of, uh, you know, reaction or anger um, or fear. I mean, who knows what motivated uh, those, uh, those particular threats. Um, but I, I think, again, if we think about the context that we're living in and that, that youth in particular, he, this is, you know, this is still a young man. The social isolation that people have experienced over the last couple of years and the exposure then that they've had to online narratives, the disinformation, the conspiracy theories. Uh, I think that that absolutely contributes uh, as well. So, you know, you're already vulnerable because of the anxiety that is being um, created by COVID and, you know, the, the fear of, uh, of becoming ill or the fear of, you know, losing your job or, uh, you know, economic anxiety in your community, that sort of thing. All of that is manipulable uh, by, by the far right who provide very easy answers that help to explain your situation. I'm speaking with Barbara Perry, Professor of Criminology and Justice at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa and Director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism. We're talking about the attack uh, as well as uh, white nationalist extremism, uh, the attack in Buffalo over the weekend that left several people dead at a supermarket. When we come back, we'll talk more about uh, the Canadian context to all this and what are we doing enough to fight back? And if not, why not? That's after this. I'm speaking with Barbara Perry, Professor of Criminology and Justice at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa and Director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism. We're talking about the attack over the weekend at a Buffalo supermarket that left uh, many dead, uh, 10 uh, at a predominantly black in a predominantly black neighborhood, African-American neighborhood in Buffalo. And uh, what we know about uh, the suspect in this case, Uh, Barbara, you mentioned it earlier in terms of Canada. Uh, are we doing enough to fight back against this radicalization process? And if not, why not? Well, I think we're very slow to the game. Uh, it really wasn't until a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, that um, policymakers, law enforcement, and intelligence communities really started to take seriously the threat posed by uh, far-right extremism uh, in the Canadian context. There'd been this almost um, single-minded obsession with Islamist-inspired extremism, and in spite of the fact that you know there have been far more incidents of violence generally, not just the homicides I referred to earlier, but far more uh, violence generally associated with the far right uh, in the Canadian context. Um, why is that? That's a that's a challenging question. I think that there is a tendency uh, to to want to attribute this kind of violence, this kind of hatred to someone who is not like us, uh, that we can, you know, we can point to the other who is dangerous. We're much less comfortable when it is someone who shares our, uh, our identities, whether that's, you know, racial or religious or, or gender uh, or, or any other identity as well. So I think that, uh, it took a while to break out of that cycle, that sort of post 9-11 cycle of uh, understanding violent extremism, understanding terrorism uh, as an Islamist issue. Uh, it is certainly 
Uh, and I think, you know, FBI have now acknowledged this. I think CSIS have even acknowledged this, that in fact, uh, in the current context, it is, we do experience a much greater risk uh, at the hands of the far right than, uh, than any other movement in the Canadian context. How do you address it? How do you stop these kinds of attacks? Well, these are difficult ones because these are, you know, all, all of the Canadian uh, cases have been what we, I think we think of as, as lone actors. That is individuals who don't affiliate with a particular group. You know, they didn't plan it in, uh, in a conspiracy with a number of other people. Um, they're part of the movement. They've been informed by the movement. They've been mobilized by it. Uh, they're consuming their narratives online, but not necessarily engaging with others uh, to to plan and, and execute uh, the incidents. So those are really challenging. And they, I mean, they're on the social media platforms, but they might not even be engaging with folks. They're just reading. They're consuming. They're not producing. Uh, so, you know, to be able to identify them in advance is is virtually impossible. Uh, I think that we need to we need to expand uh, our understanding of of who has responsibility and who who needs the the skills, the capacity to identify risk. You know, in the schools, you know, amongst family members, uh, and I think there's not a great awareness out there of of what some of the the red flags may be in terms of. Um, <clears throat> especially for parents right monitoring what where where your kids are what they're what they're doing online uh you know if you're in my house i don't care if you're you know 15 or or 20 if you're in my house i want to know what uh what it is that you're following um schools classmates peers uh you know i think we need to have uh, to build the capacity of uh of everyone across the the board to identify markers and it's that's a challenge because there are different markers for each individual but i think we can see things like you know increasing isolation self-isolation not enforced isolation self-isolation um you know anger um even you know people are not necessarily shy in expressing some of their sentiments you know are they suddenly um you know voicing more concerns about immigration or about muslims or about black people whatever the case may be so um you know there i there's a there's a menu almost uh you know, that you could uh, you could select from it, it that the country the um, combination of items on that menu is going to differ uh, person to person. But I think that's an important uh, factor to keep in mind. I think in general, though, you know, where this is, where this is happening, where the, the radicalization, if you will, the animation is occurring is increasingly online. Uh, so that's someplace that we have not done a very good job uh, in terms of, of intervening, obviously. Social media companies aren't up to the task uh, on their own, obviously. Um, been very slow to um, intervene, uh, to take folks, take folks down um, who are continuing to spout this kind of nonsense. Even if they do, then, you know, we have these fringe uh, platforms and those are even more challenging uh, to, to regulate because they don't want to, uh, you know, they don't even want to have any community standards around, you know, what is acceptable, unacceptable, what is hateful, what is not hateful. Um, so, uh, you know, social media companies are, are incapable of that. What can, what kinds of, of, policy, what kind of regulation can we um, bring to bear there? Um, but again, then we raise the challenges of jurisdiction. 
what can we do now? What must be done? What lessons must be learned from this latest horrific event? Oh, I think I think aware uh, our own awareness, our critical digital literacy. You know, we've talked about critical literacy for for years, um, but I think that that digital uh, literacy is increasingly important, not just for youth but for adults. I mean, if we look at, at people who are drawn into uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation, for example, I mean these these are these are middle aged and older people as well as uh, as well as youth. How can we intervene there, right? What can we do in the workplace to ensure that we're, we're providing people with the skills to reflect on what it is that's coming across their screens? Barbara Perry, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you.